0: Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever just sort of looked around and wondered, what was this place like at the height of the last ice age? I'm Michelle Vollner, and today we're going back in time because today is all about the La Brea Tar Pits, which has more ice age fossils than any other institution in the world. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Sean Campbell about saber-toothed cats, mammoths, mastodons, what makes an Ice Age an Ice Age, the fact that dire wolves are not fictional, fossil excavation, ancient camels that roamed north america how i got lost repeatedly in a building that is literally one big circle how humans have used the tar pits across the millennia de-extinction the difference between tar and asphalt what happens when a bunch of mammoths hang out on an island for a long time human remains in the tar pits 10 foot tall slots what might have caused a bunch of species to go extinct around the same time pop culture references deep time and how much still remains to be discovered and understood about the labrea tar We'll get to all of that Ice Age goodness in just a second, but first a couple of quick things. On previous episodes of Golden State Naturalist, you've learned about things like giant sequoias, vernal pools, fire ecology, monarch, butterflies, how California was formed, and even how beavers help out in the face of historic droughts and wildfires. And more great content is on the way too. Episodes on urban nature, amphibians, native plants, nature journaling, and a bunch more are coming out this season. So if you're interested in California ecology or, really, any of those topics, make sure you're following the podcast wherever you listen so that you get notified as soon as a new episode is released. In Apple Podcasts, you can follow by hitting the little plus sign at the top right hand corner of your screen. It will look like a check mark if you've already done this. On Spotify and Audible, just tap the word follow. And if you want to help Golden State Naturalist get made while also getting some lovely perks and community, you might consider becoming a patron. I make this show completely independently, including researching and scheduling guests, traveling for interviews, editing audio, and promoting episodes. So every contribution helps fund things like audio equipment, travel for interviews, necessary subscriptions for making the show. Plus, patrons get exclusive access to audio and video extras from the show. And they get to submit questions to be included in interviews. You can join for as little as $4 a month at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. It also helps a ton to leave a rating or review wherever you listen, or just to share your favorite episode with a friend, family member, colleague, or anyone who has ever pointed out a sunset to you. If you want to see what outdoorsy things I've been up to, you can follow me on Instagram or TikTok at Golden State Naturalist. My website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. But now, let's get to the episode. Sean Campbell is a senior paleontological preparator at the La Brea Tar Pits. He graduated from San Diego State in 2011, with a major in anthropology and minor in geology, focusing on forensics and human osteology. And then he did so much. He volunteered at La Brea, interned at the Milwaukee Public Museum, volunteered with the Forest Service on Passport and Time, or pit projects, And on several of those projects, he's been involved in excavations on historic, prehistoric, and paleontological sites in California, Wisconsin, Illinois, and North Dakota. He's also been on dinosaur digs in places like Utah, New Mexico, and Patagonia. And he goes to Mexico twice a year to collect Pleistocene terrestrial fossils. Basically, dude is living out all of our wildest childhood dreams. So without further ado, let's hear from Sean Campbell on Golden State Naturalist. We just did a whole loop of the museum and that was supposed to help me narrow down what I wanted to talk about and it didn't work at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> too much, right? Now I just
0: want to yeah, talk about it. That's what everything. the
1: collections managers
0: say all the time. Too, much. <laughs> too much! Too much! So the museum at the tar pits where Sean and I met up is called the Page Museum, And there is in fact so much to see there and so much more is regularly pulled out of the ground that Sean told me they're actually running out of room to store it all. Now you might hear that and ask, why don't they just slow down and leave some of these things in the ground? But La Brea is located in Los Angeles, and in such an urban setting, the second largest city in the country, in fact, businesses that come in and build in the area frequently find fossils while digging foundations. And the folks from La Brea have to excavate, measure, prepare, and store all of those fossils. You realize what an incredible feat that is when you look around the museum and then remember that only a tiny percentage of the fossils stored there are actually on display. In the midst of this incredible richness of fossils at the museum, Sean and I stopped next to an American lion, Panthera atrox, which went extinct about 11 to 13,000 years ago around the same time as a bunch of other species that we'll talk about later in the episode, so hang on to that. When it was alive though, the American lion was about 25% larger than modern lions, which you may recall are not tiny. These American lions are not thought to have been very social animals, in contrast with another cat found at the tar pits.
1: Funny enough, the saber-toothed cats, they're thought to actually be probably more social than the American lion or atrox. So saber cat Smilodon fatalis, the specific species that we find at La Brea, there's been so many specimens found in these deposits, as well as so many pathologies or injuries that are evident on the remains and bones that we find that it's very clear that some of these individuals would have been so damaged and hurt and unable to tend to themselves that others were tending to them, or at least they were allowed to accompany the pride or social structure, whatever exactly it was, and then, you know, eat and go to the kill site and maybe get the last remains, but Uh something to keep them going. Wow. Yeah. So the saber-toothed cat is speculated to be a fairly social
0: creature. So I don't know about you, but I love humans and I'm aware of our many imperfections, but I love that humans will do this kind of thing where we won't necessarily get anything back, but we will still give to somebody who needs something to make sure that they can be okay. And I just think it's really cool every time I learn about another species that exhibits or exhibited this type of behavior. And just real talk, I don't know a whole lot about saber toothed cats, but like, how do they, it doesn't seem possible for them to kill something Right, like, their, their mouth, their teeth would get in the way, right? Like, how do they kill something? They
1: So, there, this has been argued by scientists throughout the, like, the discovery of saber tooth cats.
0: Do you think there's any chance that they could just be, like, showing off to each other? Like, it's like some kind of a, a mating arms race where it's like, yeah. oh, those big teeth are so impressive. Right,
1: so that's probably part of it, but not the only part, because males and females, they both have really large canines. Okay. There is a very small amount of sexual dimorphism that's been analyzed in specimens found at La Brea. And so they are somewhat distinguishable. Oh, this is most likely a male. This is most likely a female. But they're pretty close. And when it comes to their canines, they're about the same oh, length. interesting. And so they all probably. have serrations. So it definitely is not only mating display. Mm-hmm. It's, there's definitely functionality to their prey capture and dispatching prey.
0: Right. Like, I'm not going to turn down those cool teeth, but like, that's not the only reason that you have Right. Yeah. All right. Cool.
1: But this specific species, Smilodon fatalis and the, the Smilodon genus, it's thought that they are ambush predators mm-hmm. and so they might be in a slightly more forested environment or some sort of place where they have cover. Mm-hmm. They're hiding out until a prey item walks along and then they ambush and pounce on it uh directly what you're
0: about to hear is in contrast to all those nice warm fuzzy things we learned about Smilodon fatalis a minute ago so if you think you might be sensitive to hearing the details of how these cats made their kills maybe just skip forward like 30 seconds we'll be good
1: hold it down and then use their canines in a very particular way because Mm. they are definitely liable to break if they hit bone or if the animal struggles too much so the current idea is that the extremely powerful forelimbs of the smilodon were capable of wrestling an animal down and holding it still so that it could use its canines in probably the throat area Mm -hmm. and either slice out the trachea and the jugular and it would either suffocate or bleed out extremely quickly. So we know that the saber tooth morphology or the the shape of the canines and how long they are has evolved multiple times in geologic Mm -hmm. history and multiple different types of lineages.
0: I'm sorry, did he just say that these giant sword teeth have evolved multiple times over the eons? He did. According to LiveScience.com, more than a dozen kinds of animals, many of them now extinct, had saber teeth, including saber-toothed salmon and the marsupial thylacosmilus, which please go look at the Wikipedia page for thylacosmilus immediately because it has the most amazing chin I have ever seen. The article goes on to say that today, saber-toothed animals include the walrus, musk deer, and warthog, all of which grow incredibly long and sharp canines, the hallmark of a saber tooth. Elephant tusks are long incisor teeth and thus are not sabers. One of the things I think is interesting about these saber tooth animals living today is that they aren't using those saber teeth for hunting like the saber tooth cats were. Walruses, for example, use their tusks to pull themselves out of the water onto the ice. And musk deer, the males, they look like little fangs on the musk deer, and they use those to fight with each other to prove how cool they are to the females. So while saber-toothed cats use their teeth for hunting, not every type of animal ever to have saber teeth uses them in that way.
1: But these canines that are super elongated keep evolving multiple times. And so many paleontologists postulate that given enough time, eventually we'll see saber-toothed cat morphology arise again in some, some sort of fashion. So obviously it's not going to be tomorrow. Sure, sure, we're probably yeah. not going to be alive to see it's it. A long time but eventually, <laughs> deep time going into the future, we're most likely going to see the saber-toothed cat morphology again.
0: One of the many things that I learned while visiting the Page Museum is that you can, in fact, take a wrong turn while traveling in a circle. Okay, so I tried to get lost and then we turned around and went the right way. And then, <laughs> and then we came to this massive mammoth, like... I've never actually stood by a mammoth skeleton and I had no idea mm-hmm. that it was this much bigger than an elephant.
1: Yeah. They're very large. It depends on what mammoth you're exactly talking about. So mm-hmm. a very common misconception at La Brea is that everyone thinks the woolly mammoth is here. Oh, okay. So the woolly mammoth is not here. The woolly mammoth is farther north. It would have been closer to the, essentially the ice sheets, the major ice sheets up in North America. So. The last glacial called the Wisconsin ice sheets came as far south as like the Wisconsin area, which is mm-hmm. why it's called that. You can actually walk a trail in Wisconsin where there was a terminal moraine of the ice sheet, which is really cool. So the ice age has been going on, the Quaternary Ice Age, since the beginning of the Pleistocene, so like over two million years. Mm-hmm. The earth was cooling down starting around like 35 million years ago, but you have permanent ice sheets both in the north and southern hemispheres mm-hmm. starting around two and a half million years ago. And that the technical definition of an ice age is that you have those permanent ice sheets okay. in both hemispheres. And they oscillate. So global average temperatures are oscillating depending on a bunch of different factors. But when it, it warms up and it's an interglacial, the ice sheets are melting and receding away. Mm-hmm. And then when it cools down, it's a glacial period. And more water is being trapped in the ice sheets. And the ice sheets are expanding and going in different directions, including... In North America, going farther south, as far as Wisconsin, the last major glacial.
0: What Sean is saying here is that we are still in an ice age, just not the really cold part of an ice age, which is called the glacial period. Instead, we're in an interglacial period. The last glacial period hit a maximum around 20,000 years ago and then ended around 11 and a half thousand years ago. A timeframe that coincides with the age of many fossils found at La Brea. And although some of the fossils are much older, they're still on the scale of tens of thousands of years old, not millions of years old. So there are no dinosaurs being pulled out of the tar pits. Also, this feels like a good moment to mention that LA was actually underwater when the dinosaurs were alive. So definitely no dinosaurs. But even though it was colder during the Pleistocene when these fossils date back to, there weren't these major ice sheets here in California. Okay, I promise that this was all important and we didn't forget about the mammoths. So the woolly
1: mammoths would have been closer to the areas that were much colder because they were adapted to colder environments. Southern California, specifically L.A., it might have been a little bit cooler and a little bit wetter, but it it wasn't snowing every day. There wasn't sure. ice everywhere, so it wasn't like that at all during the thousands of years that represent the La Brea tar pits. So the Colombian mammoth is actually a larger mammoth than woolly mammoth. Oh, okay. And Mammothus columbi is the species of mammoth that we find here at this specific locality. Mm-hmm. It was really across a lot of North America, all the way down into like Mexico and maybe even a little bit farther south than that, but. It most likely preferred warmer local climates like Southern California.
0: Would there have been more for it to eat in those climates, and that's like it could get bigger? Is yeah, that the but idea? it's more about not
1: being adapted to certain environments. Oh, okay. So like the woolly mammoth was very shaggy and had hair. Its ears were severely reduced to prevent frostbite. Uh, so it was its tail. The tusks are oriented maybe slightly different directions and the woolly mammoths were probably shoveling snow out of the way to oh. get, get to grass and other uh-huh. things that were underneath. Whereas the Colombian mammoth was not adapted for exactly those types of environments. It's more adapted to mostly grazing because that's what the teeth are based on.
0: Okay, so that's the difference between woolly mammoths and Colombian mammoths, but... Aren't there also mastodons somewhere in this picture that are another big elephant-y type of creature? How are those different from
1: mammoths? The easiest way to tell mammoths and mastodons apart from each other is based on the teeth. You can actually see physically those teeth right there. Yeah. Each one of those is just one big tooth and it's a bunch of plates that are all fused together and it's dentin and enamel and cementum and they all grind down at different times. So it creates these little rings and ridges and when those two occlusal surfaces grind past each other they're a perfect surface for grinding up silica-rich vegetation such as like grasses and things like that Mm -hmm. so mammoths didn't only eat grass but they are adapted to eat grasses Mm -hmm. that's the main difference whereas mastodons we can look at their teeth later they have these huge loafs and cusps and they're better for breaking up larger bits of vegetation foliage branches all that sort of stuff so again They can eat a little bit of grass as well, but they're not adapted to take on that abrasive sort of uh, vegetation.
0: Mm -hmm. So the day after I recorded this interview with Sean, I went to the Natural History Museum of L.A. And from across this giant exhibit hall, I saw this massive skeleton of a large animal with tusks. And I looked at the teeth and I was like, Mastodon! And when I got closer, I read the sign and it was a mastodon and I could tell because the teeth look super different. So on a mastodon, like Sean is describing, they're these very big pronounced molar looking things with many more sort of hills and valleys within them. Whereas a mammoth's teeth almost look like a flat grinding surface. I was so proud of myself that I texted Sean to tell him about it. So that's the most obvious way to tell them apart. Yeah. But what other kinds of differences do they have between
1: the two? Overall size. So like this Columbian mammoth is roughly like 12 feet at the shoulder. It's a huge animal weighing many thousands of pounds, many tons. The mastodons are much shorter, they're probably like eight to nine feet at the shoulder usually, and they weigh thousands of pounds less.
0: Mastodons, mammoths, and elephants are all part of a group of animals called proboscideans. And just like humans, they evolved in Africa and then spread out across many parts of the globe. Unlike humans, who only have one remaining species in the world though, proboscideans have three, two in Africa and one in Asia. Maybe you already knew this, but I was shocked when Sean told me that there are two species of African elephants. I thought there were just African elephants and Asian elephants and that was it. But apparently there's a bush elephant and a forest elephant in Africa. I had no idea. Okay, but back to mammoths. Do you ever learn something and it just sticks in your head and rattles around in there and sort of pops up randomly when you're spacing out? What Sean is about to say here is like that for me. It's been months and I still think about this all the time.
1: So another really quick thing about proboscideans, I need to show you this over here. Oh, yeah. Not many people know this story, but dwarfism in proboscideans is extremely common. Oh. So essentially every major lineage, gomphotheres mastodons, mammoths, elephants, they all have pygmy versions at uh-huh. some point in the past on different islands around the world. Along the west coast in North America, in this case right here, we can actually show you real specimens of the difference between a Colombian mammoth, so this is mm-hmm. Zed's mandible that we found wow. in 2006. And then this is a mandible of a pygmy mammoth that was found on the Channel Islands. Uh-huh. So the sea level change has fluctuated and oscillated with the average global temperatures. And at different points in time, the Channel Islands, the sea level was lower, and some of the islands formed one big island called Santa Rosé. The Colombian mammoths swam over there Mm -hmm. and then had no predators, but they needed to get smaller in order to stay there for a long period of time. So over many, many generations, they adapted and evolved to become as small as possible. These are like roughly a quarter of the size of Colombian mammoths. And they speciated and became their own species and lived specifically on the Channel Islands.
0: It's like a purse-sized one. Yeah, put it it's in a, like you can it, put it <laughs> in in a, a stroller <laughs> and take it for a walk so it doesn't have to go. It's it, on the ground. it was
1: definitely still a few hundred pounds. Maybe you would still be riding on it. But uh, yeah, a purse sized one for sure. A Compa- first-sized one for the, for the Columbian yeah, mammoth. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, the Columbia <laughs> mammoth would have been carrying it around, I guess.
0: And this effect doesn't apply just to mammoths. I'm going to read you a paragraph from a science.org article entitled Island Living Can Shrink Humans. Living on an island can have strange effects. On Cyprus, hippos dwindled to the size of sea lions. On Flores in Indonesia, extinct elephants weighed no more than a large hog, but rats grew as big as cats. All are examples of the so-called island effect, which holds that when food and predators are scarce, big animals shrink and little ones grow. But no one was sure whether the same rule explains the most famous example of dwarfing on Flores, the odd extinct homonym called the Hobbit, which lived 60,000 to 100,000 years ago and stood about a meter tall. That's about three and a half feet tall. I'll go ahead and put that in the show notes so that you can learn more about this if you want to. Okay, but at this point, Sean and I left the museum and walked across the grounds to a fenced area containing a bunch of large crates that Sean told me were part of a salvage project from when the neighboring art museum in Hancock Park decided to build an underground parking structure back in 2006. The project is known as Project 23 because the fossil deposits found during the construction fit into 23 of these crates that Sean and I were looking into now.
1: So right here you're looking at box 13, which is the 13th deposit found in 2006 for that project.
0: Wow. And and as I'm looking at it, just to give a quick description, the center is just taken up by this black mass with bones jutting out in every possible conceivable direction, smushed together very tightly. And you were saying there's pretty much every species represented here
1: yeah so the way these are thought to form is that the asphalt seeps up to the surface and then it's very small and it can collect things like insects and plants and then the sediment from the mountains buries that material and then the tar and the gases percolate through all of that and maybe the seep gets a little bit bigger because it's already at the surface and then eventually it gets big enough to stop things like mammoths and mastodons and safety of cats but it takes a long period of time So each one of these deposits represents thousands of years of accumulation, Mm. generally speaking. So in box 13, this is a very classic vent or chimney type deposit where many things are obviously entrapped and their fossil remains have been preserved by the tar itself and buried by the sediments mostly predominating from the Santa Monica mountains. In this deposit, We have a bison, a baby bison, a horse, a baby horse, a giant ground sloth, a baby ground sloth, a baby mastodon. We have rabbits and squirrels and weasels and skunks. We have large predators like saber-toothed cats and their cubs, dire wolves and their pups, coyotes and their pups, a mountain lion skull, which is super rare. We have badger and bobcats and Plants and insects and almost every species of bird is in here, all the way from the small passerine songbirds to the extinct terrororn that had a 12-foot wingspan and weighed mm. over 30 pounds.
0: So it is, I, I am, this boggles the mind because it is so jumbled up. I'm gonna have to put a picture of this on social media to even start to convey how jumbled up this is. How do you possibly separate all of those things out? Very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> It's
1: very complicated because there's such density of fossil remains, as you can see, yeah. there's no articulated specimens or the associated specimens, Or we, we have to determine that by studying the remains as we pull mm-hmm. them out. Mm-hmm. We use a lot of chemicals to soften up the area that we work and then we use dental tools and brushes and fine implements to kind of whisk away the matrix or sediments surrounding the fossil remains, expose it entirely, and then once it's at a point where we can measure it and remove it, we use our total station or in the past we just use meter sticks, plumb bobs, and line levels and things like that, and measure out the specimen based on the grid system that we've put arbitrarily on top of
0: it. Wow. I cannot even conceive of the amount of patience that this would take. I barely have the patience required to make popcorn in the microwave.
1: So it's a lot of effort, a lot of time, and a lot of documentation. So in box 13 in particular, It's taking about eight months to finish a level which is about 25 centimeters because there's roughly every level is producing 2,000 measurable specimens of all sorts of different types of creatures.
0: 2,000 specimens in 25 centimeters. And that's only
1: specific criteria, so it's mostly just the large stuff. So we don't measure tiny birds and tiny rodents unless it's like a full skull because we have to draw the line somewhere. Otherwise, we just won't get anywhere. So in the past, they tried doing that in PIT 91 and it took On and off, they've been working in there since 1969, but Uh they've gone five feet because they're trying to do everything over a centimeter. And that's what happens when you try and measure every single little thing. Yeah. So for Project 23, because it's a salvage project, there was a decision made that, hey, let's measure all the taphonomically significant specimens. Mm -hmm. So understanding how a deposit formed, usually the easiest way to determine that is by studying a long bone or something that has some sort of long axis because it's orientated in a specific direction, and that might tell you something about the flow of that area, whether or not it's sediments or potentially tar in this case, whereas something small like a rodent tooth is gonna act like a sand grain, and mm. it just moves along with the other sand grains. Sure. So the orientation of that bone does not tell you as much taphonomically. And then the other thing on top of that for Project 23, the salvage operation, the, some of the asphalt was still seeping into these deposits when they were originally uncovered in 2006, But essentially when they ripped them out in these big boxes and crates and brought them over here so that we could excavate them in our timely manner, they removed it from the asphaltic preservation source and the asphalt and gases are no longer moving through the deposits, which has made them dry up and essentially turn into pavement. So it's even harder now that we're working on it in this type of style. Whereas if it was still being fed by its asphalt and it's still fresh and gooey, you can just use regular trowels and dental tools and other implements to whisk away the sediments Mm -hmm. without having to worry about
0: using hazardous chemicals to free them up. So you may have noticed that Sean sort of interchangeably uses the terms asphalt and tar. And there's a very good reason for that. Colloquially, tar, is how we refer to the substance that's in the pits, but technically it's actually asphalt or bitumen. I clarified this in an email with Sean, and he wrote that tar is the human-made refined product with similar properties, and that while asphalt is the preferred term for the substance found at La Brea, bitumen and petroleum are also acceptable. But I actually like that Sean often calls it tar. I think it's a solid rhetorical choice, and here's why. The reason why we use words is to communicate ideas. And I know that it's important to use accurate words to communicate ideas, but sometimes if you use the most technically accurate term, you're actually going to give people the wrong idea. If you refer to them as the asphalt pits, people would just imagine like a paved road surface that's hard and not liquid and bubbly like the way that we think of tar. Also, I'm just a big believer in not alienating people by being pedantic right up front. And I think there's a solid argument to be made that using the colloquially correct term and the technically correct term is correct because they're each correct in their own way. Okay, I'm gonna step away from the English major stuff and go back to the science stuff. In total, Sean and I spent close to four hours checking out the museum and tar pits, so I just want to note here that I had to cut out some of that even though it was great information because keeping it would have resulted in an episode longer than all of the Colombian mammoth tusks at La Brea laid down end to end. So I'm going to stick some of my favorites of those extra clips on Patreon, including information about DNA, the chemicals used to prepare fossils, pumas, how fossils move throughout a deposit, and more. So look out for those in a few days if you're a patron. And whether you're a patron or not, stick around for the full interview, because we haven't even gotten to giant ground. Now onto the full interview. Okay. I'm here with Sean Campbell Hi. and we found a little trailer to duck into. (laughs) So people wouldn't think we were an exhibit Mm -hmm. and ask us questions. And I was just kind of wondering if you could give a quick overview. What do you do here at La Brea and how did you end up here?
1: Sure. Yeah. So my name's Sean Campbell. My technical title is a fossil preparator. So I prepare fossils for research and collections at the La Brea Tar Museum. In reality, I'm an excavator, mostly. I excavate fossils. I expose them in the deposits. I measure and remove them. I bag and tag them and send them to the lab for more detailed preparation for collections. And sometimes I do that, but not as much. I'm supposed to be out here excavating for Project 23.
0: I just have to jump in here and say that you can tell Sean has an incredible amount of experience with excavation. Because when we were walking around the crates, and then we also climbed down into Pit 91 to look around for a few minutes, and while we were doing all this, Sean would point to some glob in the tar and be like, that right there is a direwolf 17th vertebra, which is the kind of thing he really did, but a specific example that I just made up. I have no idea how many vertebrae a direwolf has or how possible it is to tell them all apart. I actually had to Google which is the singular and which is the plural of vertebra to make this aside. But I wouldn't be shocked if Sean could actually get a ton of information just by looking at one little section of asphalt-encrusted backbone. It's mind-blowing to me that he can do this. And he also does other cool stuff at La Brea.
1: And then I also sometimes process the matrix, which just means I take roughly 10 pounds of matrix or sediments at a, from the deposits and I dunk them into a bucket with a sieve at the bottom and I put it into a vat of chemicals that break down the tar and the tar saturates into the liquid and gets removed. And then I sift out the superfine silts clays and super fine sands and then you're left with rocks and remains of a specific size and they're all re- relatively clean and ready for picking and sorting and analysis. So again, that's another type of preparation. Um, I don't do that as much. My coworker Karen does most of that work. Mm -hmm. I just help her when I have some time. I personally primarily focus on excavating and measuring and removing fossil remains from the project 23 deposits from a salvage project.
0: Yeah, I bet you can find out all kinds of cool stuff from the sediment though.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the geology is a huge part of the story. Without the geology, you don't get fossils. So the sedimentary nature of the LA basin has allowed for many numerous types of fossils to be preserved and protected. The special thing about the La Brea Tar Pits is that where the asphalt or tar seeps up to the surface, essentially it becomes a collection zone. So things can get entrapped and mired, and that's a bulk of a lot of things that we find. But also... When the sediment comes, it may bring remains and deposit those remains and sediments on top of the liquid asphalt that then gets encased as the tar moves through those sediments and percolates through everything and then does entrapment over and over and over again. And then things get blown in, all the sorts of stuff. So they're just collection zones. That's the preservation. So oil and water don't mix when water comes into an area usually it dissolves and breaks down bone underground under the right settings and in conditions it'll permineralize or replace organic remains with minerals and you'll get a natural rock cast form of itself which is a lot of the fossils that people see in museums but here at the labrea tar pits the oil and water don't mix so everything inside the tar deposits or asphaltic deposits is protected from that destruction so the bones have sometimes up to 80 percent of their original bone collagen wow chitin of insects, freshwater snail shells, woody bits of plants, even leaves sometimes are preserved and protected. What we don't find are soft tissues like blood, muscle, skin, okay. fur, even cartilage is gone. So the microbes that live in the tar itself, and there's tons of extremophile microbes like archaea, bacteria, so on and so forth, that are breaking down all those soft tissues.
0: These extremophile microbes Sean's talking about were studied by a team of researchers from UC Riverside back in 2007, and their findings are wild. I'm gonna read you a little summary of their research from ScienceDaily.com. Environmental scientists have discovered that tar pits in downtown Los Angeles, California, house hundreds of new species of bacteria with unusual properties, allowing the bacteria to survive and grow in heavy oil and natural asphalt. Trapped in soil that was mixed with heavy oil nearly 28,000 years ago, the bacteria contain three previously undiscovered classes of enzymes that can naturally break down petroleum products. There's even talk in this article of the bacteria and their enzymes being used for bioremediation, so things like cleaning up oil spills. Another interesting fact, the bubbles in the tar are actually methane produced by the bacteria living in the pits. So the tar isn't actually boiling like it appears to be.
1: But for the most part, the hard tissues, which are the bones and other things, those are left alone And preserved and protected.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And so to give a little bit more context to this too, like I'm curious, how are these here? Right? Like how did these pits end up here? Where is this coming from underground? What's the what's the story?
1: Yeah, so it's all about oil Mm -hmm. and it's all about the geology. Again, Mm -hmm. it all goes back to geology. So I'm gonna this is gonna be super brief and I'm gonna skip over some stuff, but Roughly a little over thirty million years ago. Plate tectonics. I don't know how much I have to describe about that, but there's
0: a previous episode that talks about uh, excellent. Okay. So there's the listen to episode one, California geology. All right, and then come back and finish this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) You can, of course, go back and listen to episode one if you want to, but you don't have to for this conversation. Basically, the tectonic plate action in and around LA created the transverse ranges to the north and east of LA and also deep basins like the one the city of Los Angeles sits within today.
1: For a lot of geologic history of California, our area has been underwater. Mm -hmm. So when you get these basins and you have ocean water and you have things like you know, diatoms and phytoplankton and, and all these different types of small organisms living in the water column. And they die and sink down to the bottom of the ba- these basin areas because the bottom of the basin is anoxic, where there's not a lot of oxygen, there's not a lot of things scavenging and breaking down all that organic material. And so it piles up and it gets deposited over by, you know, submarine canyons and fans and different sorts of erosion and deposition. And then after enough erosion and deposition pile up on top of those organic remains, you get heat index window, which turns that organic material either into oil or natural gas. And that's where the oil and natural gases of the La Brea tar pits are coming from. These are in mostly Miocene age deposits.
0: How many years ago was Miocene?
1: Miocene is like roughly like five to 25 million years ago. And the organic material that makes up the oil and natural gas of the La Brea area is roughly like 15 million years old. Yeah. So roughly two million years ago, it cured into oil and natural gas, and then a little over 55,000 years ago, it was able to come up to the surface and entrap and then capture things. So um, fossils
0: making more fossils.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow. it's, uh, one of my coworkers says it's the zombie diatoms of the Miocene <laughs> coming to kill the Pleistocene-aged
0: animals. That's amazing. So, if you're at all curious about diatoms, after hearing that, they're super interesting. Science.org says diatoms are an enigma, neither plant nor animal. They share biochemical features of both. Though simple-celled algae, they are covered with elegant casings sculpted from silica. And there's pictures online of diatoms, super magnified pictures, and they remind me of all kinds of interesting little sea creatures. Like some of them look like sand dollars, but some of them look like icicles, and some of them are just triangles, but they're all very cool looking, so I recommend checking them out. And
1: then to kind of finish off the geology story, you obviously have uplift and sea level change. This became a terrestrial environment. The cracks and fissures of the capstones of the oil reservoirs that are about 1,000 to 3,000 feet below us now that contain all the oil and natural gas have natural seepage pathways because of the bedding lanes as well as those fractures and fissures. And then the, the newly deposited sediment, which is the Pleistocene Age sands that came off the Santa Monica's, when the oil and natural gas comes up to that, it just goes to the path of least resistance to the surface. And So there's a roughly northwest trend of oil deposits in Hancock Park.
0: As incredible as this set of circumstances is, Sean says that similar phenomena have happened in multiple other places around the world, including the McKittrick Tar Pits and Carpinteria Tar Pits right here in California. Around the world, there are also tar pits in Cuba, Venezuela, Peru, Azerbaijan, which is just north of Iran, Ukraine, one in Japan, and probably more that I've missed. Sean told me that most of the material captured in these pits ranges from present day back to the Pleistocene, just like the fossils at La Brea. I was curious about the Pleistocene and wanted to know what it looked like both locally and globally, so I asked Sean to go into a little more detail about the Ice Age. Remember, we're still technically in the ice age, but we're in an interglacial period. So what I was curious about here was the glacial period that many of the La Brea fossils date back to and how that was different from today.
1: On top of like Canada and the United States, there was the Cordillarian and the Laurentide ice sheets. And essentially, they're just not really present anymore. Mm -hmm. But they were these massive ice sheets. Sometimes they were a mile tall and they were just... The, like an ice sheet, it doesn't care about mountains or anything like that. It's yeah. just ice that piles up and it still moves slightly. So it scours and scrapes the earth because it flows just slowly because it's frozen. So there's evidence of it, like you can go to places like Wisconsin and walk a trail where the terminal moraine of the ice sheet was at the last glacial maximum and stuff like that. That's amazing. So, but in at the La Brea Tar Pits, our latitude is not as far north, so our area is probably a little bit cooler, a little bit wetter, but it definitely wasn't covered in ice. A lot of people have that misconception, like, oh, ice age creatures, that refers to, like you know, woolly mammoths and things that lived around like on ice and stuff like that. And it's like, no, that's, there's a bunch of misconceptions with that right. in so many ways.
0: <laughs> so if you, if you visualize it, there's a band around the earth that's not frozen, right? That's not covered in an ice sheet, basically.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's like generalizing it to a huge degree. Is that, okay. Yes. Because like the, there's like the ice-free corridor is uh-huh. one of the hypotheses for how some humans got into North America. And it's the separation between the Cordilleran and the Laurentide ice sheet and that was sometimes closed off and sometimes opened up and mm. potentially like Native American ancestors were, and other biotic interchanges of other types of species were moving back and forth across the Bering Land Bridge into mm. North America. So like bison in particular, there's something called the North American Land Mammal Ages and the Rancho is like roughly 250,000 years to the extinction event that happened at the end of the Pleistocene like 10 to th- 13,000 years ago, and bison were kind of trapped up in Alaska because the ice-free corridor wasn't opening up, and then it potentially opened up somewhere around 250,000 years ago, supposedly, and bison were able to migrate into the rest of North America. And so the North American land mammal age of Rancho La Brea is... The presence of bison on the landscape um, past a certain latitude in North America.
0: And I kind of want to circle back to the extinction event because there's a lot of theories on what happened with that, right? Yeah. Like, what are some of the top theories on, on what caused this mass extinction?
1: Yeah, The well, it's not a mass extinction. Sorry, I have to oh, be no, no, super no, technical. No, uh, do it because I
0: don't know what I'm talking uh, about. Like, <laughs> no, <sharing> you, know, <laughs> you know a lot.
1: You know all, all sorts of stuff. A mass extinction is a certain percentage of all species in life oh, go extinct. Okay, okay. So it's like over 75% of all life on the planet. And we're talking about a fairly local extinction event. So there's multiple extinction events that are tied to specific continents. So. Africa has probably the smallest extinction event, but then there's Europe and Asia and North America and South America and Australia. They're all having these extinction events where they're losing mostly megafauna, but not exclusively at particular times. And they're all slightly different times. So like North America's extinction event happened somewhere around 10 to 13,000 years ago, but like Australia's extinction event was earlier in time. Some people, mainly archaeologists, use that as evidence for That's when humans are arriving in specific continents, and that's one of the major hypotheses for these extinction events that are going to amount to a a sixth mass extinction because we're kind of the final nail in the coffin to what we're doing today to the planet that's going to cause a sixth mass extinction. And so one of the theories is like overkill. So we have all the human species, Homo sapiens, are going across the world, migrating and going into all these different areas, and they're taking all these resources in the forms of animals, such as mammoths and mastodons and potentially ground sloths and all sorts of other things, depending on where you live in the world. So the overkill hypothesis is that these ancestors of us were going in and eradicating species from the landscape, and that's why they went extinct roughly at that time.
0: And and so you're mostly seeing the loss of like megafauna? Most, not, are you No, not like exclusively,
1: arthropods? but mostly. So like at the La Brea tar pits, if we use that as an example, over 90% of species that are found in the Pleistocene record at this site are still extant, meaning they're still alive today.
0: So about 10% of the species found in the La Brea tar pits have gone extinct, versus the definition of a mass extinction is 75% of all species have to go extinct. I was close.
1: Bobcats and birds and plants. Uh, there's no plant that's known to have gone extinct from La Brea specifically at the end of the Pleistocene. For insects, there's thought to be two insect species that are thought to be dung beetles. So they lost their dung, therefore they went extinct. <laughs> but not very many species mm-hmm. of insects went extinct. And then birds, there's 145 species or so identified at Libre Tarpids. Around 20 or so of them went extinct and mostly it's really large birds. Like the teratorn that had a 12 foot wingspan weighed over 30 pounds and there's nothing alive quite like it today, and certain species of extinct condor, extinct vultures, extinct turkeys, so on and so forth. Uh, when we get into mammals, it's mostly the megafauna mammals over a certain size. So we lost mammoths, mastodon, saber-toothed cats, direwolves, all the giant ground sloths. We lost certain species of bears, certain species of bison. We lost camels, we lost horses in North America exclusively. All that went extinct, but we also lost some smaller stuff. So there's something called a dwarf pronghorn, Caprimerix minor, that's found at the Little Bray and it's an extinct miniature version of a pronghorn. Mm-hmm. And why did that go extinct? That's mm-hmm. an interesting question. Some people have different hypotheses, but overall, mostly it's the large organisms and animals that went extinct in particular for the extinction event.
0: So one theory is that we caused this extinction event, which Not shocking. But are there any other possibilities?
1: The other hypotheses that we didn't talk about for the extinction event are climate. Mm -hmm. So that's like a lot of people agree with that one. Either solely it's climatic or in combination with other things. So the climate has fluctuated over and over again through the ice age. There's been multiple glacials and interglacials, and we entered an interglacial after the last glacial maximum roughly like 20,000 years ago. And it's been warming up ever since. And then we've kind of like exacerbated the situation with all of the greenhouse gases that we've been emitting. But potentially that climatic shift was quicker than past ones and animals didn't have time to adapt or move to new locations. And so they went extinct wherever they were at that time. And it potentially had changed foraging patterns. And so migrations were all set off and like everything was just kind of going into chaos. So like, There's a lot that goes into climate variability and potentially that was a huge major cause or the major cause of the extinction event in North America. And then there's also been other types of hypotheses thrown out there, like were there hyper diseases that were cross-contaminating multiple species and affecting certain things and making them go extinct, whereas there asteroid or meteorite impacts that helped cause extinction events. There's minimal evidence for essentially all of these hypotheses, Mm -hmm. um, but most people Think it's probably mostly overkill or climate-driven uh, mm-hmm. extinction.
0: Wow! And then a lot of speculation.
1: Tons <laughs> so, of speculation. Yeah. So there's no like smoking gun. Right. Not not everybody agrees on what specifically caused the extinction event. Wow. We just have the evidence that they went extinct for sure. Wow. Yeah. Okay,
0: if we were gonna bring one of them back, mm-hmm. if you could bring anyone back, <laughs> what would you bring back?
1: Ground sloths. Ground sloths. Yeah, for sure. Why? Because they're so cool. They they, cool. They're. I mean. <laughs> I just think ground sloths are one of the most interesting things to have ever existed. I find a lot of them, and I'm very happy to do so. So at La Brea, we have three different species of ground sloth in the paleo record. The Megalonyx jeffersoni, or Jefferson's ground sloth, is the least common. It's much more common around a lot of the United States, but for probably different habitat uh, reasons it, or competition reasons, it's not as common here. We have the Shasta ground sloth, again, more than the megalonyx, but the Nototheriops shatensis, which is the Shasta. We have some of those as well, which are thought to be more browsers. And then Paramylodon harlani, which is the largest ground sloth, is also the most common specifically here. And those are really cool, amazing animals that probably weighed roughly 2,000 pounds when they were alive.
0: For reference, 2,000 pounds is about the same weight as a small rhinoceros or small giraffe. Wow.
1: And if you imagine just these big lumbering sloths walking on the ground, and they kind of have curved hands and feet, and they walk very awkwardly.
0: <laughs> They're so <laughs> silly, I, but I love them.
1: The Mylodont family of sloths, including paramylodon, Grew dermal ossicles, which are bony, essentially, they're like bony marbles, and they grew in the skin of the animal, in the dermal layer. And so they're part of the superorder, which is xenarthrins, and xenarthrins are things like armadillos and things like that. So they have this common adaptation to generate bony armor in different capacities. Whoa. And so some sloths, not all sloths, but some sloths, like the Paramylodon, generated these dermal ossicles. So if, like, out of the three species found at Labrea, the Paramylodon is the only one that does that so in box two the deposit that I'm currently working on I found a dermal ossicle last week and it was the first evidence of any sloth found in that deposit so I already know I'm going to find more sloth as I excavate farther down and it's going to be a Paramylodon.
0: those distinguishing factors yeah. they help you figure diagnostic out. that's super cool what animal most surprises people when they learn that it was found here
1: <laughs> it depends on the person mm. some people think there's dinosaurs at labrea so mm. it can be it can range wildly so a lot of the times people come up you know i'm, I'm excavating in view of the public and the public will just shout things at me <laughs> and they'll say how many dinosaurs have you found today and i'm like if you count their descendants the birds tons but i'm not finding the dinosaurs you're thinking of because they died 66 million years ago and our materials thousands of years old not millions of years old but other people are surprised when I tell them how many extant living species that live modern day are found in the deposits. And in mm-hmm. fact, most of the fossils we find come from those types of remains. They're very surprised about that. And then you get people that have never heard of a ground sloth or never heard of a mastodon or mm-hmm. never heard of extinct species of bison or the fact that we have camels here or...
0: Yeah, that's just wild. Just
1: everything. Yeah, yeah it this, this place is highly specific. And unless you're an enthusiast or someone that really loves paleontology, geology. A lot of the people just don't know much about this place, which is always fun for the educational side of things.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I was like trying to research this, I was like, I don't even have the language to ask the questions that you I want to ask. You definitely have the language. Well, that's because <laughs> I like tried to Google a lot of things before I talked to you. It's not, it's not perfect. But seriously, it's like I, I'm used to talking about a certain set of things that are relevant to my daily life and mm. the time period that we live in, yep. right? Outside of that, I've never taken a paleontology class yeah. or anything like that. so I don't Most people that.
1: are never really exposed to deep time mm-hmm, right. and don't have a real idea of what deep time represents. Because when you really think about deep time, a location, locality like La Brea Tar Pits, this is yesterday. This right. is not, this is barely the past. This just happened. Which is and crazy
0: because to me, like, ancient Rome was like... A long time uh, yeah. ago, right? And I think that's the <laughs> timeline that, like, I think.
1: Right, and in, in human standards, Rome was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Let alone 10 thirteen thousand years ago. I mean, our fossil specimens—the oldest of them—are roughly fifty-five thousand years. Mm-hmm. There's probably some that are too old to be radiocarbon dated. So the radiocarbon dating kind of doesn't really work after fifty-five thousand years because the the half life of the isotopes mm-hmm. and stuff. But the terrestrial fossils that we're used to finding and that make up the bulk of the La Brea collections are usually somewhere between 10 to 55,000 years old.
0: On the more recent end of that time frame, there's only one human whose remains have ever been found in the tar pits. I'm gonna let Sean tell you a little bit about her.
1: La Brea woman, she was found in all the way back in 1914 our museum had exclusive rights to excavate from the Hancock family. The Hancock family owned this property before they deeded it to the county and the museum institution. So they gave the people of the world and specifically Los Angeles the La Brea Tar Pits Mm -hmm. to be preserved and protected forever. And then in starting in 1913 Hancock family gave exclusive rights to us because the Natural History Museum back then had just opened its doors in 1913. That's when we opened. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to work with us and help produce specimens and collections for that new museum. And the two-year time span that they gave us between 1913 and 1915, they went kind of crazy and they dug up as much as they possibly could in that two-year time span. They, did, they dug 96 deposits. Some of them went down 40 feet. So they all range in size and they're all custom by hand with pickaxes and Uh shovels. There are stories of them using dynamite but that was only to blow off capstones of oxidized hardened asphalt Uh to get to softer material that was easier to excavate underneath but mostly it was by hand setting up a grid system and pulling out fossils from grids and depths and saying this is this this is that and not collecting the small stuff as much. So in that process they excavated a deposit referred to as deposit 10 It was the 10th deposit dug in that two year time span. And that six to nine feet underground, they started finding human remains. And they took, in the notes you can read through, they say, we took special exception for this deposit and we started collecting every single little teeny Mm -hmm. tiny thing Mm -hmm. that could be associated with this individual that unfortunately is collected in this deposit. Obviously, she's of Native American ancestry. This area is Tongva land and the Chumash are nearby. There's lots of different tribes that live throughout California, obviously, and the modern descendants still live in these areas today. La Brea woman was radiocarbon dated and she's like roughly 10,000 years old. Mm-hmm. They also did some isotopic readings on her remains and Oddly, she doesn't have a marine diet, which led some archaeologists Mm. to think that she came farther from inland, maybe came out here to collect asphalt or something like that. A lot of the artifact remains that are found in the tar pits are marine shells or antlers that they were using to collect tar from the surface seeps Mm. and then put it into a basket or a bowl or however they were collecting Mm. uh, the asphalt.
0: And that kind of makes sense, too, because the locals would have known a little bit more about how to be safe yes. probably around yeah and the
1: pit, and right? all human beings are hyper intelligent animals mm-hmm. and most of us are very social creatures that you know if someone got trapped their family friends relatives would find a way to pull them out
0: right as someone who is myself not a local to this area i was walking around behind a fenced area. So this is not open to the public, but it was an area where Sean and I were walking around. And as we were walking, he pointed out, hey, that's pit 10 right there. That's where they found La Brea Woman. I did not even realize that it was a tar pit at first. It really just looked like a level piece of ground with a little bit of leaf litter on top. Nothing really special to look at. On closer examination, you could definitely tell that there was something different about the ground there. But I can see, if you didn't know the area and you just walked in, having no idea what you were walking into.
1: Obviously, accidents can happen. Sure. We don't know what happened to La Brea Woman in particular. Is it a possibility that she fell in and was all by herself, have succumbed to her death in the deposit? It is a possibility. Mm-hmm. But also it's a possibility that she died nearby and a stream pushed some of her remains into that area and her remains were collected at the surface of the deposit and then buried over. And then also another possibility is maybe there was a ceremonial burial nearby an asphalt locality and she was buried and then the asphalt came up and surrounded her remains secondarily. It's not really known. We know for sure that she was roughly in her early twenties when she died. She was a fairly short stature, probably under five foot. She probably had a kid or two before she. Die, and she's definitely diagnostically female, and she's 100% Native American ancestry, and she dates to 10,000 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So there was a domestic dog that was found in the same deposit. Mm between three to six feet. And for a long period of time, people thought that they were associated, but they radiocarbon dated the dog and La Brea woman herself again. And the dog came out at 3,300 years and La Brea woman came out at uh, roughly 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. So temporally, they're not associated, although spatially, they're very close to each other in the deposit.
0: Sean says that there's also been rampant speculation about foul play with La Brea woman's death, but there's not really great evidence for that. And Because of the lack of evidence, it's not really proper to speculate about it. But what about other types of human interactions with the tar pits? We're not a very archaeologically rich site. Mm -hmm.
1: Like, there's only around 100 artifacts that have been identified, and most of them are like marine shells and things thought to collect. Because the marine shells only date to times when human beings are around. Okay. Any deposit that's older than that... They don't have marine shells.
0: Oh, interesting. So
1: it's thought that the marine shells were brought by the humans to collect the asphalt. Sometimes the shells fell in.
0: And what were the people using the asphalt for when they collected it?
1: Yeah, human beings are super ingenious and inventive, and they've been using tar, asphalt, and then making their own type of like pitch, which is a similar consistency to glue things back together. So if you have a, like a, say like a stone bowl and it broke apart, you can glue it back together using that adhesive of the tar. Mm -hmm. Or if you want to make like an incision cut on a bowl and then inlay it with tar and then put a bunch of beads on it, it's a way to decorate that bowl. For baskets, they could essentially caulk the inside of the basket with tar and They had like things like tarring pebbles where they would cover pebbles with tar, put it in a basket and roll it around and it would cover the entire interior of the basket uh with tar so that it would be waterproof so they could transport water in a basket or whatever else. Uh, Attaching fish hooks to fishing line or all sorts of ideas. So when this area was conquered by the Spanish Spaniards and then later this was a Mexican territory, the Spanish and Mexican people were using it to Thatch roofs and things mm. like that for their homes. When this became part of the United States, the Hancock family started commercially mining the tar in this location to sell to pave roads as far as like San Francisco. Whoa. So they were cobbling roads with tar from the La Brea Tar Pits. Whoa! Yeah. So That's pretty wild. much anything you can think of to utilize tar for, somebody along the way has utilized it. They, already did it. They, they already did it. they already did. <laughs> yeah, for sure.
0: That's incredible. And
1: way more than I, than what I said.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. Have you seen the Libreo TV show? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: uh, one episode. I watched the first episode. Okay, uh, just, just to say I had seen right, it. Right, right, right. I've not actually seen the show, but if you're not familiar with it, do yourself a favor and go watch the preview. A big chunk of Los Angeles falls into a massive pit in the ground, and then the characters find themselves back in time. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, what'd you think? Disclaimers, obviously, there's not a portal in time.
1: Which is disappointing. People can't, it's super disappointing. My favorite scene in the first episode was when the lake pit kind of like drained like a toilet bowl, and then it uh, everything kind of fell in to this time vortex and got shot into the Pleistocene. Um, that was hilarious. It was really funny. So obviously, as a bit of entertainment, it's good fun. Right. But I'm sure there's a lot of inaccuracies represented in that. I saw, like, renditions
0: of what the teratorns are supposed to look like Teratorns are an extinct bird species with an 11 to 12 foot wingspan. And I think they like gave them pseudo teeth or real
1: teeth or something weird like that. I don't know why. But yeah, obviously not everything's going to be accurate. <laughs> but maybe But it's a bit of it's all a bit of fun. It's right. all for entertainment right. purposes. It's not really for educational purposes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And maybe it'll get people interested in the real thing.
1: Yes. So they can come and learn what the real things actually yeah. represent. Yeah.
0: Which are cool enough on their own. Yeah.
1: Some would say even cooler. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Some would say. <laughs> Amazing. And and it's also like this, La Brea has been represented in a lot of popular culture and yeah. movies and things like that. Do tons, you have any, any like favorite references? There's a,
1: one of our museum educators uh, who no longer works here, but he collected as many pop culture references to the
0: La Brea Tarpits as possible.
1: Obviously, some of my favorites are like The Simpsons, oh. The Flintstones, tons of stuff. Uh-huh.
0: There's a 23-second long video on YouTube that's a clip of The Simpsons La Brea episode, and I've watched it probably seven or eight times, and I've laughed every time. It's called Self-Care.
1: And a lot of the misconceptions of how people think about the La Brea tarpets come from those types of uh, entertainment. Mm-hmm. But... You know, it's all in good foot, and it spreads the word that La Brea even exists.
0: So right. It's, it's all good. I mean, I guess all press is good press. Mostly, mostly <laughs> Most yeah. press is good yeah. press. <laughs> Last question for you. After working here for almost nine years, mm-hmm. what about this place still blows your mind or takes your breath away?
1: Everything. The fact that we can still, there's so much more research to do. A lot of people think that the La Brea Tar has been over analyzed and every hypothesis has been figured out and there's just nothing left to do and that's couldn't be farther from the truth mm-hmm. there's so much more to learn and find out and we need experts from all sorts of different types of fields to come in and do work and we encourage them to work with us the collections managers and the curators in particular we want more publications and papers and stuff comes out every year mm-hmm. and researchers from all over the world know about this locality and come here to study the remains. And we're such a super specific and important paleontological site because we mostly have carnivores, which are super rare in the record. We have these huge data sets of like, you know, there's over a thousand complete saber-toothed cat skulls, let alone 140,000 individual bones. So someone that wants to know anything about Smilodon fatalis literally you got to come here and mm-hmm. um, it, it, we can tell you the most, or you can find out for yourself the most from utilizing the specimens in our collections. And it just kind of blows my mind that there's just so much to know and one lifetime will never be enough, let alone many, many generations of many people's lifetimes will not be enough. And that we can still find new material and add to the collections in new ways. So like for box 13, first raccoon skull ever found at this site ever wow. was found a few years ago and that's incredible that we can still find new things and add to our collections so as much as all this salvage going on because we're in an urban environment where people are constantly digging up and making new buildings and finding new stuff when we kind of don't have the capacity to handle it at that exact moment it can be overwhelming but at the same time it's exhilarating knowing that potentially there'll be something new to the science in the specific area of La Brea coming from that material.
0: That's cool, you're never gonna get bored.
1: No, you can be bored. I mean, how could you be bored digging up 30, 40, 50,000 year old remains of once living organisms and they're so spectacularly preserved like uh, like here?
0: Yeah. It's so many kids dream about it and you actually yeah. did it. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. I'm
1: very lucky to be a staff member, but I started out as a volunteer mm-hmm. and most of the people that work here started out as a volunteer. So go to school, go to college, get your education, learn as much as you can, come intern, volunteer, mm-hmm. donate your time, but eventually get paid to do this and make it a career and a life path. Mm-hmm. So for those of us that stick with it, it's extremely uh, satisfying.
0: That's very rewarding. Yeah. Nice. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. I so appreciate it. I took up your whole morning. And I got the okay. I got yeah. a full tour.
1: I'm sorry we can't go over everything because there's just too much to go over. But thank you so much to you and all your listeners for being interested in the La Brea Tar Pits.
0: There have been over three and a half million fossils excavated at La Brea, and Sean and his colleagues unearth more all the time. I love the idea that there's always more to learn and to understand about a place like this. And one of the special things about La Brea is that it can teach us not only about the past, but also about our present realities and possible futures in the face of a rapidly changing climate. I very much appreciate the work that's being done at La Brea to discover more about our past and to share that knowledge with the world so we can carry it with us into the future. I'm incredibly grateful to Sean and everyone at La Brea who gave me a warm welcome both on the day of the interview and in the preceding weeks as we got the details for my visit planned out. And a particular thank you to Michelle Barboza Ramirez, who you may know as a host of the PBS show Eons or by their Instagram handle, which is at LatinxNaturalist, for kindly introducing me to Sean and making this whole episode possible. I traveled to LA for four days this summer for this interview while my husband stayed home and took care of the kids who were three and four years old at the time. So as always, a big thank you to Stan for fiercely defending my time and my ability to do the things I care about. Something interesting from my week is that I rediscovered how much I love writing poetry, and now I carry a little notebook with me to the playground so that I can scribble down ideas while my kids play, and it's honestly just a huge quality of life upgrade over scrolling endlessly on my phone like I was doing before. Okay, thanks for time traveling with me and for listening all the way to the end of the episode. You're the best, and I'm glad you're here. I can't wait to see you next time on Golden State Naturalist. Bye! The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find the link to that as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes. And if you want to help Golden State Matt, and if you want to help Golden State Matt, why is it so hard?